Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. And on the podcast today, we have Dr. Naima Bana Lopez. Welcome, Naima. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, before we get started, I want to just acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the lands of the Klam and Holmaks, Klehus, and and Homoko First Nations, uh, who are one borderless nation and part of the Coast Salish peoples before we came in and separated them into reserves. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, just grateful to be here on on the unceded lands. Uh, today's a a big day for the Klamen First Nation, which is sort of the closest government to where I live. The other three First Nations are kind of in really remote areas, um, but this one's one that's kind of close to a city. Um, they're doing their annual cultural canoe journey from the Kalaman nation to the Shisha first nation. So it's a big event today. Lots of, lots of ceremony and tradition happening. So hope that goes well for the folks and hope the waters stay nice and calm and have a good journey, but it's a great, uh, it's an awesome event to, you know, get, I think they get a lot of the youth involved and in the paddling and whatever and that's so neat get them involved in the culture yeah it's cool i've been trying to get away from doing this on podcasts where i talk to people about 37 different things because usually they specialize in one thing we kind of focus on that uh but today we're going to do today we're doing something different today we're today we're going to talk about 37 different things uh because um because <laughs> uh naima is, is, is everywhere she's got her hands in a lot of pockets and they're all and they're, they're all kind of interrelated in, in in some way um and so uh, uh you know we're going to be touching on a bunch of different things from um um a lot of a lot of her big work in terms of her kind of bcba work around uh, naturalistic developmental behavior interventions we're going to be talking about um um and we'll, 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 won't give away too much, but we're going to be talking about some things related to Panama and disability. We're going to talk, be talking about uh, some things related to Islam and disability. Um, and we're probably going to get into a few other things as well. Um, and so it's going to be fun. And, and uh, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to learning a lot here. Um, uh, some of the most learned, some of the most, uh, enjoyable background reading i had for for today's <laughs> episode um, um there's some you've, you've got some uh, good papers recently published and i think some cool ones on the way that um, um i think are going to be really helpful to folks so we're going to jump into some of those things uh before we get into all that maybe we could just hear a little bit about your kind of origin story in the field um or just in general and kind of in, in what you do not necessarily just in aba but in, in kind of everything kind of where you came from, how it all started, and how you got to where you are now. Sure. So uh, I started like way, way back. Um, I, I, I never, I was in school and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was majoring in psychology. And then I had an experience with a family member um, that has a son with disabilities. And we mm. were on a family vacation and we, you know, I was with him. I was hanging out with him and his mom was like, you're really good. 
Hmm. Why don't you why don't you consider studying something related to kids with disabilities? And at the time, I was thinking about doing something different. So I switched my major. I was already in college. I switched my major. I switched to special ed. I was in Panama at the time, so I'm originally from Panama. Hmm. Um, and I was attending FSU Panama. They have a campus in Panama where you can do um, kind of study abroad. But if you're a Panamanian, you can do your first two years there and then transfer to um, Tallahassee and get in-state tuition. Yeah, cool. So I did that. And then when I transfer, I did a, my bachelor's and my master's in special ed. Um, then I taught in Tampa, in Florida for four years before I moved to Pennsylvania to get my PhD at Penn State. Uh, when I was a teacher, I was a teacher with students with more complex needs, um, hmm. autism, um, intellectual disabilities, comorbid, co-occurring autism and intellectual disability. So a lot of them have complex communication needs. So that's why I decided to go to Penn State because I wanted to focus on helping students that use AAC devices. Mm. Um, and Penn State has one of like the largest AAC labs, um, two of the most. You know, yeah, two of the most influential people in AAC are there, Janice Light and David McNaughton. Um, and Janice does it through the communication science and disorder side. Mm -hmm. David does it through the special ed side. So I was able to get in. He accepted me as a student. Um, I was there um, for four years, including the pandemic, um, which was great because I was writing my dissertation during that mm. pandemic. I was supposed to start data collection for my dissertation March 2020. Which oh my gosh. Everything closed. So I had to pivot. I did a lot of other things. But while I was there, um, I... Um, Started working with Dr. Tracy Ralston, who is a BCBA, who um, trained um, in Oregon. And she did um, a lot of, uh, she does work uh, in natural listening interventions, broadly, you know, mm. broadly speaking. Good. So she was my co-advisor. Um, and she started, you know, um, I started doing a lot of research with her, going to schools, um, setting up um, uh, uh, interventions for families and caregivers. So I ended up combining the two things that I really like because I ended up realizing I really liked that part as well. Like I knew I wanted to do family-based interventions with AAC, but working with Tracy really helped me realize I like this part of behavior analysis as well. Mm. And something that I also realized working with her is that a lot of the things that I was doing in my classroom as a teacher of students with complex needs overlap with what we do as behavior analysts, right? Mm. Like a lot of the interventions, um, the praise, the the modeling, you know, all of these things that she was doing. So she encouraged me to to um, take advantage of the fact that I was at Penn State and get my BCBA, um, which I did. Mm. So um, as I was there, when I was there, I I I was in an assistant shift, so I was able to get it for free, nice. basically, um, just extra work in addition to everything I was doing for my PhD. For sure. Um, but I got, you know, she was my supervisor for a while. Then I got a couple of other supervisors. I was able to embed a lot of what I was doing and then do a, a little extra work to get all my, my hours. And then when I graduated, it sat for the exam and I passed on the first go, thankfully. Mm. It was really hard. I developed an eye twitch when I was studying for the exam because <laughs> I was so stressed. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> I sure. I going to pass. But, um, but no, but it was great. So ever since then, I've been doing a lot of work. Um, you know, like you mentioned, I, I do work in this like kind of like interdisciplinary uh, area, right? I do 
based on a lot of my own identity. So mm. I am Panamanian, like I previously m- mentioned, yeah. because I was born in Panama. Spanish is my first language. Mm. But my grandparents are from India. So mm. I am Indian Panamanian. Um, I am Muslim. I was born and raised Muslim. Mm. So I have that going on for me as well. So, And I've been living now in the States for 13 years. So I have all these identities. And a lot of them I find are really under underrepresented in special mm. ed and applied behavior analysis. So that's why I end up doing a little bit of everything, a little bit yeah, with yeah. Latino populations, a little with Muslim populations, because I feel like you know, if I'm not going to do it, um, it's not going to get done for, for at least the way that some of the things that I want to do are not going to get asked done because there's not that many of us, you know, there's mm-hmm. not that many, unfortunately, um, Latino BCBAs, Latino special ed teachers, although going to Calaba a couple of months ago, was such a cool experience because I did meet so many Latino BCBAs. Oh, amazing. But um, yeah, that was really cool. So yeah, so um, that is where I come from and a little bit about me. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And there's a lot there. And, and there's, um, I like the way you told the story, which was just the way it went, but was with the BCBA thing kind of coming in at the end of all of it. Like, you know, a lot of folks are, <laughs> come into BCBA land, you know, you know, through sort of a kind of a standard kind of progression of things that, you know, a lot of folks go through with, you know, being RBTs and all that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and then maybe eventually as a BCBA, maybe they eventually kind of spread out into sort of other areas, but, um, but, you know, you were, you were doing like special ed for a whole lot of years. uh, And then, just saw the, you know, ABA is kind of being more of a match in there. And so just kind of added that on at the end. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I think that really, because we were talking before we hit, I hit record about, we have heard about sort of how, you know, I've said, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast about kind of how, you know, historically we've been kind of a, you know, a, a, a siloed kind of field um, um, and, you know, some folks, you know, maybe just figured we could do everything because behaviors, you know, everything is behavior. And so we can do anything um, with nobody's help. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and then, and, or, or there's sort of been other, other reasons kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of for all that. Um, uh, and so we don't often hear about folks that are, you know, BCBAs that are kind of have their hands in so many different pots. I know they're 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 out there. There's I know there's a few mm-hmm. folks out there. They're definitely doing stuff like this, and they're all over the place, and 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 that's awesome. But it's not that common, um, if, at least with the folks that I've talked to. Um, so I, I like that it kind of went that direction, and and so the, you know, you weren't grounded in sort of all this sort of, I don't know, I don't know what the word is for it, but all this kind of ABA ness that. You know, yeah. the, 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 you know, because as we know, ABA is, is it, I saw someone shared a post the other day on Facebook and it was um, psychology, it was, it was a picture that said psychology and on the bottom it had like Skinner and Watson and Pavlov and it was basically, basically it had a list of like six or seven um, old white guys um, um, yeah. that were basically the foundation of psychology um, and in a lot of ways the foundation of ABA as well um, and, you know, I find if people start in ABA and don't get that kind of, you know, um, um, sort of culturally, uh, you know, informed education, 
um, it can really skew their perspectives of things kind of going forward. Whereas I think you went the opposite direction. You were already there with all these intersections and, uh, you know, ABA just kind of came at the end. And it was funny because I was even, um, I was working with a lot of SLPs at a time, right? Because mm. I was doing a lot of AUC work. Yeah. And a lot of them, and you know this, a lot of them are against ABA. Right. A lot of them are very much, you know, they had bad experiences with BCBAs trying to take over um, programs that they had developed mm -hmm. for helping a child communicate or a child swallow and things that they considered their expertise, which I, you know, a lot of them like swallow. Like, yes, they have a lot of training on that. Yeah. So I was coming from a place where I was actually very um, reticent about becoming a BCBA. I thought it was going to inform my practice, but I didn't want to become a BCBA. Mm. I wanted to take the classes. I wanted to learn, but sure. I didn't want to be a BCBA at that time. Yeah, yeah. But the more I learned and the more I read, and I was very lucky that I had really good mentors and advisors, um, particularly, you know, um, like I mentioned, Tracy, but also mm -hmm. Kristen Bonomo, who is at the University of Pitt. At Pitt. Mm. She was one of my supervisors and she helped me see that B ABA is everywhere. It's everything we do. It's mm. not just a program for working with kids with autism, like a lot of sure. people see it. Um, you know, she she assigned this book, and I don't know if you know this, it's like what Shamu taught me a love about love, life, and marriage, I think it's mm. called. Okay. <laughs> but she assigned it for one of our pro for, for one of our classes. And it was this this woman who uses behavior analytic principles um in animal training, right? Because mm. we know that that's a that's a branch. But then how she was she realized she could use some of that in her everyday interactions with her husband. Mm. And she was giving like really concrete examples about that. Um, so that book also really helped me see, you know, the big picture and how yeah. it applies to everything we do. So it ended up making me realize, okay, this is what a lot of what people are saying about ABA is coming from a place of, yes, we, we have done some things that we need to improve on for sure, 100%. Mm -hmm. Um, but also it's not just therapy. This is a science and this is human behavior. So I ended up, like I said, realizing, yes, I wanted to become a BCBA to to talk about this and to be able to um, provide services that were very aligned with the with the with the background of the family and their values. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think, you know, I think the criticisms of ABA, you know, they primarily come from, you know, the the autistic community um whether 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 they're if they be you know consumers or parents or just uh, you know advocates or whatnot and and you know like you say aba is a science that is used in a whole bunch of other ways and yeah maybe maybe uh, the bulk of our work in reform might need to be done in the you know autism land but you know there's a lot of other areas where you know aba hasn't either hasn't been used or hasn't caused you know the uproar that it has, you know, um, and I think, like you said, because the science, because that stuff just works in sort of all areas. And, um, you know, I mean, who knows if there, there may be advocates in other fields to come to say, Hey, what are you guys doing? But, um, um yeah. but, but I think we've also, some of us have also learned from, you know, those experiences with the sort of neurodiverse community and, and thought, well, let's, let's not make those same mistakes you know, in these other areas and and maybe we can do something better. Yeah, like you were saying before, it, it comes from psychology, right? And psychology is 
a pretty new field in 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 the scheme of history and things. Yeah, and we're still learning, and there's still a lot of criticism, right? For yeah. psychology and different psycho, uh, you know, therapy. So um, mm-hmm. I think that's our job right now to to learn from what other people, um, autistic advocates and yeah. so on, are saying about our field and um, improve so that we can provide services that really um, help families and um, and individuals with disabilities in general. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so well, maybe we'll kind of start with some of the the, the NDBI stuff. Uh, so uh, audience is starting to expand a little bit beyond behavior analysts. So I, mean, I thought maybe we could just go through some 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 basics first for folks that might not know what we're talking about. Um, yeah. uh, first off, kind of what NDBIs stands for, and 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 sort of what what that what 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 it means for it to be an NDBI. How does it how is it ABA? Like what is an NDBI? Yeah. So a naturalist and NDBI NDBI stands for naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions. Yeah. And um, naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions are at the crossroads between applied behavior analysis and developmental psychology. Mm. So we use it a lot of the behavior analytic principles with um, you know uh, developmental milestones. We use um, natural root uh, occurring routines. And one thing that I I have kind of you know, learn um, is, and for it to be considered an NDBI, it has to be manualized. So it has to have a manual. It mm. has to have um, usually a name. So we talk about Jasper. We talk about um, the early start Denver model. Those are all NDBIs. Mm. So now when I talk about my interventions, because most of them are not manualized or not, I call them naturalistic interventions, right? Yeah, not sure. NDBIs. I just call them naturalistic interventions. And that was a reviewer actually corrected me on that the other day in a, in a paper that I was writing. She said, okay, or they said, hmm. um, it, it, it will be better if you call them naturalistic because you, you're still not there. You're, it's still not a manualized intervention. So hmm. that is basically it. So what I am doing now are naturalistic interventions, what I did for my dissertation, what um, some of the other projects I have on the pipeline. Um, and what I mean by naturalistic is that they are. Uh, mostly home-based or school-based. Hmm. So they are implemented in the child's or the individual's natural setting by a natural partner. So hmm. caregivers are my um, focus, but there's also teachers, paraprofessionals. Um, because I work with Latino populations, I might also work with grandparents or siblings or cousins that take, uh, that spend a lot of time with the, with the, with the child. And um they usually we try to use as much as possible materials that are in the child's natural environment as well. Wow. So the way that I I pitch it or the way I say see it is we use what's already there with who's already there to make it so that it's as easy and as light touch as possible hmm. um, for it to for it to be a naturalistic intervention. So, but I'm sure other people might see it differently. So. You know, without. You know, making this a uh, you know, too negative, but what what's so what's then unnatural about you know things that aren't NDBIs or aren't naturalistic interventions? What 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 what? How does that differ from the the way other things are done? Yeah, so usually when we talk about like not as natural interventions are implemented in the clinic, right? The child goes to the clinic, which is not a natural environment for the child. Um, the primary 
person implementing the intervention is the BCBA. Mm. And naturalistic interventions, the BCBA or the RBT is... Everyone wants to have control of their life, to make their own choices, decisions, and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that are, include embedded resources easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is Panama. Working with the parent who is um, then you know, being coach, we provide a lot of coaching, we provide yeah. a lot of training so that the caregiver, the parent, uh, whoever's implementing can be siblings, I've seen some with siblings, mm. um, can deliver the intervention. Why do we do this? Because it can be generalizable in other settings. We, as, as therapists, you know, we can only be there so many hours a day. We can yeah. only do so many things. But if you have the caregivers, no strategy. And the way that I tell them is like, these are strategies that you can use when you are making dinner, when you are playing with your child. Um, one of the st studies I did with um, my, my, one of my dissertation advisors, um, Tracy, we were doing, during, we were doing it during play dates with other, mm. with other kids. And the parent was just there kind of guiding the play date, right? Navigating, helping them share and whatnot, using some of the strategies. So that is what we mean when we mean naturalistic. Um, I think a mix of both is great if we can have both, but, mm -hmm. um, going back to my, um, interest, like a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is in, um, countries where there's no services, there's maybe like two or three behavior, um, uh, behavior technicians or mm. behavior therapists, or even BCBAs, like there might be only a handful. So we work with parents so that, um, or caregivers so that they can use strategies that may help their child. Oh. Um, and so this is where, because I think how I originally found you was through a presentation you were doing on NDBIs and diverse populations. Was was that Calaba or was that? Yeah, that was yeah. at Calaba. Yeah, yeah, which is awesome. And uh, and what 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 kinds of things were you were were you talking about there? So in Calaba, I gave an overview. So that presentation, I gave first an overview of, you know, naturalistic interventions, kind of like we just talked about. But then I used this um, cultural framework um, mm. that is um, that talks about all the different aspects we need to consider for 
um, implemented an intervention. So he was a, uh, I think it was a framework. I can't remember who did it. Mm. Um, but it talked about the different dimensions of diversity and why we need to adapt interventions. So he talked about mm. language, right? Like, mm. so when we are implementing an intervention and we are working with families that may be from, um, an, uh, a non-majority group in the area, um, or from in the, in the country. And I say that because when you're in a place like Texas or California, mm-hmm. there's a big Hispanic population that you'd be more likely to have a Spanish, uh, Spanish-speaking teacher or a Latino, sure. Latina teacher or therapist. Um, and that's very different than if you are in Montana or right. if you are somewhere else. So I talked about, you know, cultural adaptations and factors to consider for adapting interventions. So if you're working with a caregiver or a parent that is Latino or it's from another minority, think about the language. Are mm. the materials available um, in the language and mm. that the caregiver speaks? And not only the caregiver, if the child is spending a lot of time with their grandparents, aunts and uncles, like, do you have materials that they can use? And think beyond what is written, right? Like a lot of times we translate things verbatim um, or we translate things like Google Translate helps us translate them mm-hmm. but some things don't translate well um, we might need to translate idioms or things that make it so that it's more relatable right, right. Um, so I talked about that I talked about thinking about who the person is and uh, who the the person is implementing the intervention um, what are the goals we talked mm. a lot about social validity and making sure that goals are appropriate for the family and prioritized by the family. Um, I heard a coworker was telling me about a um, intervention, a family they were working with, and I think they wanted to target one skill, but the family was like, no, we just want them to be able to go to church with us. For us, mm. um, going to service, going to church is very important. And right now, um, the child is missing out on that. We want you to help us so that the child can go to church with us. Excuse me. So that's the what the intervention is, you know, did um because that was the goal that was prioritized for the family in that moment i think the interventions and i don't remember the whole story but mm-hmm. um it was uh really working on building rapport with the family getting buy-in and obviously this was really important this was socially valid so they started with that um and finding overlap between those so talk about that um we talked about methods um finding emotionally meaningful interactions is very um, it's a p- focus of naturalistic interventions, but what is emotionally meaningful for my family is not going to be emo- emotionally mm. meaningful for another family. Yeah, so yeah. thinking about that, um, and then the context, um, I talk a lot about religion because given my background, I know how religion can play a role in so many facets of a family's life. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thinking about how, you know, if 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 you're comfortable talking to the family about their religion and how you know their protocol, the dynamics, their diet um, will impact. So I talked about you know it was a an hour long presentation, yeah, but yeah, yeah. it talked about that. It was all about these like factors that we need to consider, particularly when we're working with caregivers um, in their homes. Right, a lot of early interventionists do this. A lot of um, behavior analyst, but I was doing it in the context of naturalistic interventions because those typically you know, it, are very family involved, very caregiver involved. Right on, right on. There, there was a, 
an Instagram post. I don't know, maybe it was like in May. Around then, somewhere right, right around when we were kind of connected the first time. And um, it was talking about um, cultural adaptations versus implementation fidelity. Um, and, oh, yeah. how, and how those things are kind of at odds with each other. What, what did you mean by that? So um, there is some in the literature, right? We talk a lot about implementation fidelity. We have hmm. fidelity checklists. We have all these ways that we make sure that the in intervention is being implemented the way it was developed. Hmm. But the problem comes when we have to create these adaptations that I mentioned where you have to make sure that um, maybe, you know, the way that you're delivering a con the content is in a specific way. And I don't have a specific example, but you may For have sure. to adapt things to make sure that they fit the family based on what you know. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I there's not a lot of work in this area in our fields, be it applied behavior analysis or special mm -hmm. education, but I did find um, work in mental health interventions. And they found that um, culturally adapted uh, mental health interventions were mm -hmm. more um, effective than mm -hmm. those that were not culturally mm -hmm. adapted. So um, there's not a lot of research there. So that's what I meant because my my concern was, you know, we have this intervention that might be developed a certain way. And gotcha. if you start adapting it too much to meet the cultural, what happens, right? Like we, we mm -hmm. don't know yet because we haven't done, but it is. It seems that it will be more socially valid, and we had mm -hmm. a nice um, conversation there in that Instagram post, like you mentioned. Um, people were commenting on it because it's an area that, because now we're realizing the importance of culturally adapting interventions and making sure that everything's socially valid. Um, it's an area of research that needs to needs to happen. We need to make sure that how much adaptation still sticks to. Um, and I know with. Uh, for example, the early start Denver model, which is a manualized NDBI intervention yeah, and the early years as well. There's been a lot of um, work done there adapting culturally for Latino families and um, in other countries as well. So there's some work. There's some work there, but we still have a lot to do. Yeah, well, one of the conversations is is also, you know, why do we have to keep adapting things like what wh wh why are the things that we why are the things that we have to ad we're adapting exist like and, and and why do they need to be adapted um and not so much in terms of sort of for obviously for all the reasons you you, you indicate you know there that we want to we want to you know we want to be you know, culturally you know contact and social validity and all those sort of things but more what was wrong with this thing in the first place that we have to now adapt them off um um and 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 what's what's going on in sort of our field in terms of how we create you know interventions and create procedures and do research that we then have to then go adapt it versus why can't we just have stuff that's already you know culturally you know aligned and then we don't have to do any of that sort of thing yeah so have you heard the saying um social psychology is weird or it's uh, like it's, it's what is it? Is it, it, it? I think it's weird, right? It's yeah. kind of weird because it's white. So weird stands for okay. acronym for white right, right. educated, um, white educated, industrialized, 
and I, I can't remember the other ones, but basically yeah. what they talk about is that a lot of the social science experiments that we are using, not just in our field, but in general, mm -hmm. have been around college campuses, mm -hmm. which is where we have a lot of access. And because of that, um, participants end up being white middle-class families that live in yep. the suburbs. So why do we need to adapt? Well, because a lot of the research that we have done in the last, you know, in the last 50, 60, 70 years mm -hmm. don't include participants that look like yes. the people that we work with. Um, I didn't even know that someone, I, I saw it also on Instagram, like women were not even allowed to be part of research trials till I think it was like, what, 50 years ago? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah. we're in, th in this case, we, we're not even talking about diverse children and their families. We're talking about a whole, you know, subset of the population that identifies as a uh, as women that have been yeah. excluded from research so that's why now we have all this um i know there's some researchers that talk about like well evidence-based for whom right we have all these evidence-based interventions mm -hmm. but when we look into them a lot of the, po the population was in special ed in applied behavioral analysis it tends to be young young white boys yep so we're doing some, we have to do some work to make sure, okay, are these interventions effective for everybody? And if mm -hmm. not, why not? How can we fix it so that everybody has a chance to uh, leave successful independent lives? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I know a lot of early, well, I think even still, it's still happening today, psychology research. Um, what was one? I had a guy, Dr. Evan August on, and he's a, he's a kind of Haitian psychologist um, that's, uh, we were talking all about sort of the history of the history of psychology and the history of racism and psychology and psychology research. The reason why the Association for Black Psychologists was formed and why they're a separate entity from the APA entirely. Wow. Um, yeah. um, um, and why that was needed. Um, um, and some of it was sort of related to how, you know, first there's there's and, and I talked to Malika Pritchett about this stuff, too. Some of the early psychology research was, you know, you know, black folks in particular weren't, you know, and and women, you know, to an extent as well, weren't, you know, they were truly subjects versus participants, right? You know, they were experimented mm -hmm. on, not with, um, and uh, and and things like the research sort of for problems. So, like, if we're sort of maybe they were looking at sort of, you know, aggression as a problem, for an example, then the subjects would all be black. But then when we're looking for solutions to aggression, the subjects would all be white because we want to help the white folks get better and the black folks can't get better. So we don't have, we don't need to keep including them. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I think, I think that that's the answer is that all the research is so skewed towards, you know, the, these, um, it's basically you know a white supremacist sort of uh you know majority and um um which is not even majority i mean i think we're hearing a lot more about the global majority um and how that's not white um and uh but and so then we yeah then we have to do all these adaptations where ideally we'd have research that already took into account sort of all the different populations and intersections and all those sorts of things so yeah, no, it, yeah, that, 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 that's the answer. That's why we have to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, exactly. And for that, we need more teachers and more behavior analysts and more practitioners and more researchers that um, identify as members of these communities because it is the lived experiences that uh, a lot of us have, like like you mentioned when you interviewed um, a psychologist that you mentioned, a lot of it is, is you know, like I said, lived. You, you can take into account some, some things like, you know, the, the way I was raised with my family, like I have firsthand knowledge of a lot of things that, that we do that are traditions, that are culture, mm-hmm. cultural, that may affect how we provide an intervention. And I'm very lucky in the fact that I was raised, you know, Indian and Latina and Muslim because I'm mm-hmm. able to relate to all of this. And a lot of them intersect, like, you know, Latinos and Indians, we have a lot in common. So, um, but yeah, that's why I'm always pre- preaching to to my students that that identify as a minority. Like, do you want to do research with me? I will really use your your lived experience and your expertise. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, yeah, it just it just informs it so well, different perspectives. So, you talked about using kind of the NDBIs in these countries where you know there aren't there isn't infrastructure, there aren't you know a lot of, you know, certified or trained, even trained, you know, professional folks in, in behavior analysis. And, um, um, and I've had a lot of guests on now from a lot of these countries where, you know, the guests are the only behavior analysts in the entire nation or, or, you know, or they're, they're working to be the first behavior analyst in that nation. Some of them aren't even certified yet. And, and now getting certified is harder now, um, or, or at least uh, if you go a different, yeah. route, a different route now, um, uh, uh, and so on. Um, what? Uh, so, so have so have you done this work in some other countries then? And and and, and if so, where? Are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beal Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high-quality leads, and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug-and-play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beale Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at BMG freeconsult.com that's bmg f-r-e-e consult.com the second secret word is islam so a lot of the work that i am doing now um is kind of the the pre-work right um so for instance i have a project an ongoing project right now in mexico Mm. um and my first step in that project was to talk to caregivers Mm. and to professionals and to um individuals with disabilities mm. that live in that country that live that you know have the lived experiences because i can't forget that i've been in the states for 13 years now mm. my 
experiences are not might not be relevant anymore. Also, right. I'm from Panama. I'm collaborating for this project in Mexico. I'm collaborating with a woman that is from Mexico. So we're working together. Um, and the first step was to talk to the people that are living there. So what we did, this is a multi-step process. The first step is talking to the uh, professionals um, and caregivers and individuals talking, doing, we're doing qualitative interviews mm. um, to identify the barriers and the enablers to their using um, augmentative and alternative communication devices mm-hmm. in the area. Um, mm. You know, what they use, what they don't use. These are all people with um, complex communication needs. And then the second step, um, we're going to develop, we're going to adapt an intervention called power intervention, uh, which was developed by Sarah Douglas at the University of Michigan. Mm. Um, She's already testing it out. She's already tested it out in, you know, American context. She's working in some, I can't remember, I think she's in Ghana. She did her sabbatical there when I say it was Ghana. I can't remember exactly. Mm. Um, And she was working with people there to adapt it. And I told her I wanted to help her adapt it to Latino populations. So we're going to take that training. We're going to use what we learned from the interviews to adapt it. Then we're going to ask professionals to, um, you know, assess it. And that training uses um, caregivers. So we work with caregivers to um, teach them how to model. We teach them how to use praise. We teach them how to um, provide opportunities, um, scaffold supports. So that they end up providing the person with complex communication needs more Mm. um, opportunities to use their device independently. So that is the project that I'm working on right now. So Mm. I did that in Mexico. Um, And then the other thing that I'm doing is providing as much as I can um, free in-service and free, free, free professional developments when people call me from Panama or Mexico or other countries. And they're like, no, we would like for, for you to talk about your your work and how we can support people with disabilities. I never charge them. I, I say, okay, yes, if it's from Latin America, I'll do it for free. Um, so I've done um, quite a few of those as well. Um, just kind of getting the word out um, for people to learn some strategies that they can use. So not experimental yet in that sense. We're working on that. Mm, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, what's I don't know anything about Panama. I mean, I, I know everything. I know I know the thing that everyone else knows. You know the canal, um, yeah. uh, and and you know maybe the hats, which are actually from Ecuador. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I know that just because I went to Ecuador and they kept telling me it's actually an Ecuador mm-hmm. hat. Um, they just everyone just wore it while building the canal. Um, what's Tell, tell me a bit about Panama. Like, what what's what's Panama like? Sort of, you know, I mean, you know, in general, but you know, can maybe compared to some of the other kind of Latin American countries. There's so many of them, and so, but they're all so different. So, actually, the Panama hats. It was because Teddy Roosevelt visited the Panama Canal wearing the Ecuadorian, right? And that's why they and he was photographed back in the day when you know we didn't have that many photographs when people started calling him the Panama hat. Um. So. So, um, yeah, so Panama is a pretty small country. We have 4 million, um, uh, the population is 4 million people, yeah. which is, you know, an increase of 1 million since the last, like, 15, 20 years. We're wow. growing rapidly. Um, Panama, the difference between Panama and the rest of Central America is that we've had a big American influence because of mm. the Panama Canal. So there, 
since 1903, 1904. Mm. Because of the Panama Canal at first, you know, the French were there to build the Panama Canal and then they couldn't finish um, because of um, illness and sickness and a couple of other things. So the Americans came in, um, they finished the Panama Canal, they had bases, they, it was, this. there's this whole area of the country that Panamanians couldn't go into because mm. it was um, an American base. There were wow. checkpoints and everything. Um, and then after um, a few um, young men uh, died fighting for basically our freedom um, in, um, you know, the president of Panama at the time um, broke diplomatic relations with the U.S. Um, I think this was in 1969. And they signed a new treaty to return the Panama Canal to mm. Panamanian hands. Mm. So since the year 2000, so what, Not that long we're talking ago. about 23, yeah. yeah, 23 years ago, I was alive. I remember this. Yeah. This is when um, the canal passed to be completely Panamanian, only Panamanian. Mm. Um, but my parents, you know, my parents lived all through this um, when Panamanians, going back to, sorry, I keep I keep going to, to a lot of different things. Um, no, so okay. Panama is very Americanized. Um, yeah. And that's what my friends that visit from here usually say, oh, it looks a lot like Miami or mm. it's very, you know, I didn't know there were so many tall buildings. Um, I didn't know it was so, so, so big. Um, so it, it is it's very industrialized. It's very Americanized. It's more expensive than most um, um, Central American countries. Um, it's relatively safe, I would say. Um, mm. Spanish is is a first language, but most people um, uh, learn at least some English in school. It's mandatory mm. to learn English mm. in, even in public schools. But there's a lot of inequality as well. Mm. Lots, lots of inequality. Um, if you have money, you live a pretty good life, right? If your child has a disability and you have money, you can get them the top therapies you can get them private speech language like there's like three bcbas um in in panama um and all of them work at because of their unique skill set they work at at prestigious um, um schools or they have their own private practice um so that's something that most people that don't have the means can can reach or can afford so it's a beautiful country. I love it. I go back at least once or twice a year. Mm. Um, I visit my brother. My my parents still live there. My brother, and my mm. sister in law, live there. My family lives there. Um, it's beautiful. Um, in and but yes, inequality is like that top inequality and corruption. I would say um, yeah. affect a lot of the lives of everyday people. But it is a beautiful country if you like beaches, if you like the mountains, if you like backpacking. Um, or just hanging out at the beach hmm. or food it's a, also hmm. it's becoming a foodie heaven so haven so, that's, so I'm not a second I'll, I'll, I'll do some reading on my own but was 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 it like an American was it like an occupation like 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 how did America sort of mm. take over or come in you know in the first place? So yeah. Panama gave them a whole a bit a, a piece of land when they decided that they were going to build the Panama Canal. Mm. 
Mm. Um, they they signed a treaty and they said, okay, we'll build a Panama Canal for you, but we'll stay here forever. Mm. And you'll have the Panama Canal, we'll have the Panama Canal in your land, but we'll just be here and we'll manage uh. it for you. And you can't come into the area where the Panama Canal is. We'll live here. Um, they, there was even, it was called the zone, the American zone. And people mm. that were born there were ca- called Zonians. Mm. Um, um, and they were considered American citizens. If you were born there, you were an American citizen. Wow. So it was an American, they almost call it like an American state in Panama. Yeah, yeah. You had all the laws that, that all the lo- all the American laws applied in that area. Yeah. If you were Panamanian, you needed a permit or an invitation to go into that area. Yeah. It makes me think about Hawaii you know, as an example, which I don't know, it's probably not exactly the same. I mean, in that, you know, I, I don't know that Hawaii signed a treaty with Americans. They just more came in and kind of took over. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of, you know, native Hawaiians. I know I had uh, Naomi Tashira on a while back and, you know, they, they, they consider it to be a current American occupation in Hawaii, um, yeah. you know, and then they talk about Kind of some of the things kind of you've been saying about sort of you know some corruption, but also you know claims to land and so on and so forth. When when Panama you know got the canal back and got the land back, um, mm. did the did did like did the Americans did they, they leave? Yeah, yeah, it was it was um, a gradual release of of the territory. They signed mm. this paper, the this treaty. I think, like I said, like I think it was in nineteen sixty nine. Not hundred yeah. percent sure, um, but in the treaty they had it stated, you know, it would be an incremental relief, right? Every mm. every couple of years, every so many years, they would return something to Panama. Mm. It would be uh, an amount of the land, or it would be a gradual release of responsibilities. Like they were scaffolding their right. their um, their withdrawal, um, and then the last bit of it was. Um, at midday on um on um december 31st mm. 2000 or 1999 yeah. 1999 probably yeah. 1999 um and it was you know a very uh a big celebration people rushed to the administration building we call it which is this this big building where um most of the management happens and people were there with flags and there was you know singing and dancing and it was beautiful mm-hmm. and so and so so 1969 that's when the treaty was signed so that's when they is, I that, believe when they, is so. that when it around when they finished the canal then is that sort of no 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 the canal was finished in 1914 oh, okay um the canal was finished in 1914 but um like that's when it they said okay we're gonna manage it and we're gonna live here forever. Mm. Um, but then in 1969 we had an incident. So uh, Panamanian history, right? Um, yeah, there yeah. was this whole thing where um, Panamanian flags were supposed to be flown side by side with American flags, mm-hmm. um, and they were not doing that. So some students um, decided they they were gonna protest that, and they went to this area where the American flag was flying solo. They tried to put the Panamanian flag next to it. Um, they were shot. They were murdered. Wow. And um, that's the day that 
Panamanian, the Panamanian president broke the diplomatic relations with the U.S. president. And gotcha. that is when they, after a few years, I think, of back and forth, they decided to sign the treaty to eventually give Panama the, the canal back. Mm, well, so that was the beginning, the beginning of getting them out yes. in 1969. Gotcha, gotcha, yes, gotcha. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, partly of just of interest, but the reason I'm kind of asking is just sort of trying to get an idea of sort of, you know, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but like where, where, where Panama was, you know, before the canal was even built and, you know, and, and mm-hmm. kind of what, what the country was like then, and then to have the sort of American influence for so long and, and, you know, and, and, and then a long time trying to get them out. Um, um, you know, when you, cause when you talk about sort of, you know, uh, there being a lot of money, um, you know, and, and big buildings and all that sort of thing, you know, one might jump to the conclusion that therefore there would be lots of services, uh, you know, available, mm-hmm. you know, especially for, you know, for, for, for folks with disabilities and whatnot. Um, uh, but it sounds like, it sounds, it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, there are services, but they're still only available to the rich. For the most part. Yeah. I, and that paper that I uh, sent you that we were talking about, I, I just published a paper on special ed services in Panama and I interviewed caregivers in Panama mm, there to yeah. talk because um, some of the research from the eighties talks about Panama, like this really good place to educate children with disabilities. It right. was a, considered a model. Yeah. Um, but interviewing these parents, they said, no, that's not the, the case. Mm. Um, I, I, I interviewed eight parents um, eight, um, and some of them, they talk about how school only goes for half a day for their children with disabilities, right? So right. they go to school at like eight, nine o'clock in the morning. Yes, the and shifts, by noon, yeah. one o'clock, they have to pick them up. Yeah. Um, and they said, well, how can I have a job? How can I have a life outside if, 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 you know, this is it. So a lot of them talk about relying on their parents. Um, so the child's grandparents to take care of them, which adds another layer of, you know, who's taking care of the child? How are we going to get them to therapists? How am I going to get them to services? Mm. There was one mom even who said she had, she had to quit her job because in the school, they asked for someone to be with the, they were asking her to be with the child or have someone be with the, be with the child at all times. Mm. And she didn't have money to pay anybody to be with the child. So mm. she decided to go herself so her child could get an education. And that's another thing that we see in a lot of Latin American countries, which I'm also seeing in, in the in interviews I'm doing with Mexi- in Mexico and the work I'm doing in Mexico, is this idea of shadows or tutors. They call them shadows, sombras, um, with basically a paraprofessional that has to be one-on-one with the child for them to be able to be included. So it's this kind of conditional inclusion in many mm. settings where you have to pay someone in addition to paying for tuition or in addition to paying for whatever for wow. your child to be um, included um, and given an education. It mostly happens in private schools, but some people talk about it happening in public institutions as well. It's not as common in public institutions, but it happens as well. Mm. So. So if you do have the means to send your child to a private school or a private institution that may be able to provide a more comprehensive education, provide special ed services, you don't only have to be able to pay the tuition that could be, you know, a thousand dollars a month, for example, mm-hmm. 
you also have to be able to pay the salary of the person that is going to be going with your child. So that's what I keep, that's what I was saying. It's a lot of inequality. There's a lot of people that can afford it, but there's more people who can't afford it. So you can compare the, the outcomes of children or individuals in both settings. And so what's happening to all these other kids? A lot of them don't go to school right? Um, or go to school for part-time. And then mom and dad just figure it out. Um, grandparents help a lot. That's that's one great thing about, um, um, that's one of the great things of, besides many other things, but about Latino cultures is um, we're very collective. So there's a lot of support from grandparents, aunts, mm. uncles. Uh, you tend to live in intergenerational households. So there's always someone there to take care of the child. Mm. So um, there's a lot of that. Um, but we see, we see um, you know, mothers usually having to take a lot of that responsibility, not being able to have right. jobs outside the home, relying on on support from the state, if the state offers anything, family members. Um and then, um, yeah, not or not being able to get a full education. There's still instances and reports in in Panama and Mexico talking to people of, um, and you know, this is a trigger warning for for people who may you know get upset. But um, children and individuals with disabilities still being chained to beds and wow. um, not being able to leave their their rooms and their houses because especially in more rural areas because caregivers don't know and don't have the resources or just don't know um how to how to provide the supports that the person needs so um thankfully this is changing i want to say that it's changing because of a lot of um awareness of uh, you know in general about disability about um how to support people with disabilities but this is as recent as a few years ago i've been i've heard of people still um being being um, secluded completely secluded in their houses wow i mean definitely one thing i do love about like i i love that whole idea of collectivism um and uh you know, families taking care of each other and supporting each other all the way through. Um, is that is is that what seem, tends to happen then with sort of these kids when they become adults? Do they just stay in the, in the family home? And then when the parents pass away, you know, it's the siblings or the siblings' children or whoever taking care of these individuals? Or, or do they end up in like group homes or institutions or things like that? hundred percent family um two two reasons there's no no such thing as group homes for the most part right it might be there might be like an uh like a like a home for elderly care that they might qualify for Mm -hmm. down the line um but that is if there's no family available that's also why you see a lot of homelessness or um and people with uh, mental illnesses or disabilities being homeless if they don't have family to take care of them. Mm. So that's one thing. And then the other is families prefer that. I've talked to, like I mentioned earlier, my cousin, she's told me, I am going to take care of my child till I die. And when I'm yeah. not around, his siblings already know that he, they have to take care of him. Mm. That's what's expected. That's what you do. 
Um, and that's, that's the norm. And they do that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I have a, I have a really good friend who, who's also, um, uh, in, in higher ed, she was studying to get her BCBA and she has a, she's from Indonesia and mm. she has a brother, um, that has disabilities. Um, and she's the only woman, right. She has two siblings, a brother and, and, and her, and then their brother with disabilities. And she already plans that even though she's made her whole life in the United States, she, she's been living here for, I think, like eight, seven, eight, nine years. Yeah. Eventually, she has to plan so yeah. that whenever her parents are not there, she's going to take care of her brother. And she knows that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Because, I mean, that's, it's just such a, it's a bit of a tangent, but it's such a a problem, I think, in, in Western society here that, you know, the the often the parents are you know dedicated and and we see many situations of really elderly parents you know some in their 80s and 90s you know yeah. still parenting their you know their 50 60 year old you know adult children because because they can't live independently but there is no support beyond that and there's a lot of you know major fear of um, what happens when I pass and, you know, are they going to end up in an institution and so on and so forth? You know, there just isn't that sort of, you know, generally speaking. I mean, I think, you know, we do have, you know, you know, families from these other cultures that I think still do what they're doing in their home countries in, in North America, but, you know, looking at, you know, a lot of, you know, kind of the more white Eurocentric families, this is an ongoing problem and then and it ends up being a group home sort of situation which often you know is an incredible expense to you know either the family or the state or whatever um and it's you know it just leads to more problems and we've had lots of conversations on sort of the issues with residential care and not being with family and these folks wanting to be with their family because they've been with them all their lives and suddenly torn away um, so, you know, there's some stuff we, we, we could learn from this, um, but I don't know that we're ever going to switch, switch folks over to being collectivist. <laughs> it's different cultures, right? It's just yeah. different cultures and it's what it is. And we all have different perspectives and, um, priorities in life. Um, yeah. and we, we, you know, because of the way that cultures are in the U S in Canada, we do have more group homes, right? We do yeah. have more support, depending on the state, at least in the United States, you might have more supports in other states for yeah. individuals and adults with, with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, it depends on what the parents can afford. But um, yeah, even 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 in, in even in the U.S. and Canada, you have more support than you would have in, in Latin America and most, yeah, yeah. most in most states, more countries. So it's very interesting, the differences and seeing the differences. In, in that as well for sure what's uh something i kind of talk a lot about when i'm talking to folks sort of talking about sort of you know autism in particular i think and, and developmental disabilities to a lesser extent in kind of other countries is is kind of where where they're at in terms of you know the models of, you know of understanding like there, there's a lot of push in western culture right now towards you know you know, a more social model of uh, of disability, you know, which is, you know, I think embodies, you know, inclusion, values of inclusion and, mm -hmm. you know, talks about, you know, ableism and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but then other countries, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
you know, they're nowhere near that. There's no, there's no, there's no, there, we're not at a point of advocating for a social model because maybe we're not even at a medical model yet. You know, maybe we're at like a religious model or a spiritual model of, of disability. And like, I, I know I had a couple of folks on from um, Nigeria and Ghana not that, not that long ago, and they were talking about how, you know, there's places in, in rural in, in, in rural parts of one of those countries where, you know, it's completely a religious model. Um, uh, when someone's born with a developmental disability or autism or whatnot, um, uh, you know, right away, they, it's a spiritual explanation that's looked for first. And if there's going to be any kind of treatment, it's a spiritual treatment that they're going to look for, mm-hmm. whether that be prayer or, you know, a, you know, sort of, you know, ceremony or ritual or, or, or whatnot. And, you know, and one example was that they thought they were water spirits. And so mm-hmm. part of this solution in, in this one sort of, and it's, it was, it's rare. I mean, I, I want to say that this is happening to all autistic children in Ghana or anything, but in this sort of rare rural remote part of the country, the solution was to bury them alive uh, and the spirits would come back and take them or something, or they'd return to the water in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was sheer fluke, I think, that in the most recent story that someone was found that out and dug them up before, but they don't always get that chance. What, where, where are things that, I mean, we've obviously got sort of the wealthy thing happening and that's probably a different perspective to, that we're not really talking about here, but as far as sort of the rest of the country, where, where, where are things at and sort of is sort of disability and acceptance and stigma and all that kind of thing. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting Black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives Black and Brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for Black and Brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The third secret word is smile. I can say for the most part in Latin America, we are in a completely medical model right now. Hmm. We are strongly in the awareness slash acceptance stage Mm. um we're not there yet in regards to the social model Mm. um i think i think we can see some now autistic advocates um starting to come up and say that but in limited spaces right in social Mm. media Mm. um talking about i'm autistic and that's fine um Mm -hmm. that's actually an account that i follow right right on yeah, I think the the gentleman is Mexican, mm. um, but it's strongly still medical. Um, mm. We thankfully we don't see what what we see in some in some like I mentioned in some countries um, in regards to the religious model. But I would say I do want to say Latin America in general is still very religious, so there's a lot of religious model informing mm. that medical model and families finding comfort in religion when their child gets diagnosed. So what do I mean by this? Mm -hmm. 
you have a child with a disability in a country where you don't have a lot of services, where you're kind of, um, if you have the money, great. If not, you have to really fight for your child, like yeah. literally fight for, for, for your child to get what they need. Um, when I was talking to people in Mexico the other day, they were talking about people even stealing their communication devices, right? Like if you have an iPad or if you have a uh, eye, gaze, eye gaze device, there yeah. are um, individuals with disabilities that did not want to go out in the street or even cross the street to to the other side because they were scared that they were going to get mugged and that mm. they were going to rob. So I don't know how I got into that, but <laughs> basically it, when you have your child that's born in a country where a lot of these things are, are happening and these countries are very religious, very, very um, Catholic, Protestant. In Panama, we have a mix of religions. Like I said, my family is Muslim, but still very, um, religion is very strong. Mm. So you still see a lot of religious elements playing into what gives families comfort. Um, and that's why I talked earlier about religion. Um um, because, you know, you might have a child with this, that is diagnosed with a disability and you might say, okay, well, that is a blessing from God. That's mm-hmm, something that mm-hmm. God has sent me because God knows that I can, they, God only chooses special people to raise, you know, quote unquote, special children. Um, so that provides the sense of, um, you know, relief, not relief, but, um, comfort to families. So I would say it's, we have a lot of awareness. We're moving into acceptance, very informed by or supported by some of those religious elements of mm. God and supporting. Like I in my in the paper that I wrote with my friend Atika, um, um, who I was talking about earlier from Indonesia about Muslim families. Mm. Uh, in that paper, um, she always talks about when we present that we do that presentation. She talked about how when her brother was born in Indonesia. Her parents were, you know, at a loss. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know mm. what to. He's in his twenties now, so this was quite a few years ago. And her grandpa, who was a religious scholar, sat them down and told them, "Well, you don't know the blessing that you have gotten. Um, mm. Your child is sinless, right? Your child is you taking care of this child is gonna uh, give you heaven. Is gonna you're gonna earn a place in heaven by taking care of this child. That's mm. why God gave you this child, and that, that really comforted them." Um, so that that's also a plays into that acceptance awareness um, that a lot of families in in these countries in Latin America and some other countries are are feeling. Yeah, well, it's a good segue too because I want to talk about this uh, this Muslim <laughs> paper because I, I I loved it. I, is is that something that's up for publishing or? Uh... Yes, I just got we just got feedback from reviewers. Um, yeah, last last week two weeks yeah. ago so we're going to be working on addressing those revisions yeah. and sending it back so yeah that's, that's it's, awesome. it's in the works so this is uh this is an awesome paper and i think you know something i've i've been thinking we need versions of for you know a lot of different contexts um you know i mean i the, the kind of the working title and it may change when it gets published but the, sort of mm-hmm. one of the drafts was addressing the needs of practicing muslim families a guide for practitioners you know i, I know it, it i know and, and i know this is a conversation that's happening a lot right now around cultural adaptations cultural responsiveness and whatnot you know and uh, and uh, in that we can't sort of you know 
generalize and and you know and 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 we can't say well all muslims are the same all muslims are going to look at everything the same and and so on and so forth um but at the same time i think there are in in a lot of different cultures there are some commonalities and there are you know some you know yeah some some things that maybe are more likely to happen in in certain settings it doesn't mean they will but it just it really I think what this guide is 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 essentially a, it's a it's a it's a prompt to ask certain questions that you might not think to ask um, or to ask about. Um, um, and you and, and there are probably a lot of ways you could take this paper and just cross out Muslim and put something else in there. Uh, obviously, you're not going to talk a lot about Islam, but um, um, but generally speaking, you know, asking questions about you know you know religion and practices and diet and 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 you know special days and all these sorts of things that are that kind of happen in in a certain culture i think are really are really helpful and, and this was i don't i don't know much about islam or or, or muslims and i would i would hazard to guess that most folks don't um uh, that that are you know from that area and, and you know american Propaganda has done a great job of of sort of painting, you know, Muslims as, as you know, as terrorists and other things like that, um, um, you know, not after 9-11 and whatnot. And but just really just in general, brown folks um, um, is sort of being, you know, all falling into that category. Um, I still remember um, driving across the border in, I think it was, I think it was in... Uh, can't remember when it was, but it was right around. It was late '90s with with my with a buddy of mine who, um, you know, happened to be East Indian, and uh, but he also happened to, you know, have really long hair, and I think he had a bit of a beard, um, and uh, getting pulled over at the border, and everyone in the car being spoken to, but only one person being asked for their ID. Um, and that was him sitting at the very back in the back corner. And I never put it together as to why that was, um, uh, because back then I was just so unaware of anyone else but myself. Um, uh, but it's, it's it's been something that's been around forever and ever and ever. And certainly after 9-11, um, uh, you know, and, and, and to this day with, you know, so many different things that different U.S. governments have put into place and other governments have kind of followed suit with, um, you know, we've really painted this picture um um uh, that's that's a pretty negative one and a pretty sad one um and i think this paper is just great at sort of first off dispelling all that i mean you don't go into any of that which is great and nor should you um but you just talk about you know a lot a lot, a lot of the good stuff that 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 is it that is part of islam but also a lot of the stuff that you know might you know um you know might be might be considered a bit controversial if you're not sort of you know uh, part of that community um um and, and and talk about those sorts of pieces too so i really like it and for for all those pieces i wouldn't mind just kind of talking a little bit about sort of you know a, a bit of an intro to islam and being muslim um but before i do i'm just i, I was just sort of curious about sort of you know being raised muslim about your own story like how how is it that you were raised muslim in in Pan in panama how, how, how did that all Kind of, how does that come to be? I know your grandparents are from India, but we haven't really got the sort of Muslim history of, of, of you and your family. Yeah, so my my grandparents are from India. They're Muslims from India. They, okay. um, uh, when the partition happened, right, have uh, most of the Muslim people went to Pakistan. My family stayed in India. Um, 
And I asked them recently why, because a, a friend asked me, like, why did your family stay in India? Mm-hmm. And I asked them and they said, well, some elder in the family said we should stay in India. So we did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so <sense>. they did. <laughs> that was it. They said that they should. And then they started emigrating. So um, mm. I now have family um, in, um, obviously, my parents are in Panama. Most of my mom's side from mom's side of the family is in Panama, but I also have family in the UK. Mm. I have two aunts and a lot of cousins in the UK. Mm. I have family in Canada, in Toronto. I have mm. the cousins in Toronto. I have my parents have cousins in Malawi and in South Africa. Mm. Um, now I'm here in the US, so we're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so because they are Muslims, um, that's one of the one of when they, you know, when my great grandpa. Um, moved to Panama, they strong uh, held very strongly to our roots. Mm. Um, there's a small but you know very um, uh, united um, Muslim community in Panama. Mm. Okay. But Panama is very diverse. So in okay. Panama, you have one of my favorite stories is a few years ago when they did the Panama Canal expansion. Mm. One of the one of the celebrations for the expansion included a religious element, and mm. they invited. Uh, representatives from the top five religions in in Panama because of how diverse Panama is. So they had mm. a Catholic priest, they had a Protestant priest, uh, pastor. I think mm. they had a Jewish rabbi, they have a Muslim um, uh, Imam Sheikh, and then they had a Greek Orthodox um, mm. priest, um, which are the top five religions in Panama. Wow. So. Um, it was really cool. So I was raised, you know, that's, 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 um, that's the background of why my family's Muslim. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and so it just it obviously goes back generations and generations. Um, so let me kind of some, 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 some basic questions. I'm sure folks could Google and find the answers to, but, um, you know, some of this is kind of covered in the paper. Like what, what is, What's it mean? What's Islam versus being Muslim? So Islam is the name of the religion. Right. right? Um, and practicing people who practice Islam are called Muslims. Okay. Um, Muslims um, believe there's one God. And yeah. that God, the word for God in Arabic is Allah. Mm-hmm. So they believe. And, they, and we believe that it's the same God that Christians and Jewish people believe in. Right. Um, so it's one God. And then we believe that there's been different prophets throughout history, including Jesus, including mm. Abraham, including um, um, uh, Moses, mm. um, Noah, um, you know, um, sure. but in Jesus. But then we also believe in Muhammad, He's mm. the who is the last prophet. And so, so yeah, that, that was my question. You said so he's the last prophet. That's, so that, that's why, is that why mm-hmm. he's sort of, you know? Yeah. A bigger deal than yeah, some of the, exactly. other, the other prophets got gotcha, because he was he was, yeah. the, the, <laughs> he was the last one. He's the one that uh, gave us a new set of rules because before that we were following maybe the rules that, um, uh, you know, Jesus brought on. So right, now right. we were following the rules that Muhammad brought on. Gotcha, gotcha. And so, I really like how how you kind of break down, um. You know, sort of the, the sort of the I guess what the, the pillars, the pillars of Islam, mm-hmm. um, which are based sound like these are the things that came from Muhammad. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, and then how basically, and I think it's I think it's a great model that you can sort of take for kind of any religion, 
um, in, in that, you know, I think every religion has sort of a doctrine or says has sort of, you know, set things that kind of happen, you know, whether they be spiritually or ceremonially or, or you know, or, you know, um, familiarly or whatever um um uh and then and then sort of look at each aspect of that and then and think about sort of how that might fit into the kind of work you're doing with you know who who's ever there so what 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 are the these these five pillars and, and what are maybe some things we can be thinking about sort of within those yeah so the five pillars of islam include faith which is, which is you know the belief that um there's only one god and the muhammad is his prophet He's the messenger of God. Um, that's the first one. Um, so practicing Muslims must recite this um, to become, you know, Muslims and to reaffirm their faith. Uh, whenever I used to say it, you know, you know, we say it sometimes like before we go to sleep, or mm. it, it is one of those. Um, uh, so um, that's the first one. The second one is prayers. Um, mm -hmm. We pray. Practicing Muslims have to pray it's mandatory to pray it five times a day yes um and each prayer is assigned to a specific day and time so before sunrise or before sunset or after gotcha. sunset and you have different rituals and, and you know postures that you have to make when you're praying and mm -hmm. they're all different based on which one it is mm -hmm. um one thing um with that uh, in regards to people with disabilities is that it's not mandatory for for people with severe cognitive disabilities or mm. if you have physical disabilities, there's different um, adaptations or accommodations that are provided. Like, for example, if you're if you if you if you're in a wheelchair, um, you you can do it in your wheelchair. You don't have to stand up and sit down. Or if you're elderly or if you have back problems, you can do it sitting in a chair. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, like. Um, if you have um, cognitive disabilities, where to an extent that the the person doesn't understand the purpose of the prayer, then they don't have to perform them. Mm. Um, similarly, with um, with um, well, I'm, I'll go to that. But then the third the third one is the third pillar. Is so we have talked. Pillar one is the faith. Pillar two yep. is the prayers. Pillar prayers. three is charity. Mm. Um, so providing a portion of your income to charity, if you are able to, right. then the fourth pillar is fasting during Ramadan, which is what a lot of people I feel like associate with being Muslim, right? The month of Ramadan, Absolutely. you fast yeah. every day, yeah. um, because I think people get, uh, you know, it's very, very strong. You have to fast every day from sunrise to sunset. Mm -hmm. You can't mm -hmm. drink, not even water. Um, so... Um, that's another thing that if you have a disability, um, even things like, you know, diabetes, if you have mm -hmm. diabetes, you don't have to do it. Um, but if you're able to, right, um, mm -hmm. you, you, you should, you should fast every day during Ramadan. And then the fifth pillar is the pilgrimage to right. uh, Mecca. Yeah. Um, that just ended, that happened a couple of weeks ago. Actually, my brother and my sister-in-law were there this year. Oh, amazing. Um, so they completed their their pilgrimage, and they have to do it. Every practicing Muslim has to do it at least once in their lifetime. Yeah, and it's not it's not easy, right? To do to do the well, to do the pilgrimage. From my under, I haven't done it, but from my understanding, no, it, it is. It's and it's supposed to be that way. Yeah, it's yeah. supposed to be. You know, 
make you humble as opposed to this how my sister-in-law explained it to me she she's a lot more well-versed in yeah. religious she actually got a degree in religious studies wow um it's supposed to to um make you humble and mm. you know um put you and put everybody no matter your socioeconomic status your yeah. background in the same situation for those um i think five days that it that three or five days that the actual pilgrimage lasts like there's yeah. one night where everybody's supposed to sleep out kind of like a camp in a camp and everybody's supposed to do that at the same time mm. right no matter who you are no matter if you're you're a famous rock star or right. you know, uh, a teacher in a school sure. um everybody's going to be doing the same thing so yeah i can't wait to to hear uh, about their trip when when they finish um no for sure yeah i just actually i'm having a, another behavior analyst on the podcast um soon and he talked about he just did the trip himself uh, oh really uh, and was uh you know super, i don't know if it was this this year but um uh, it was in the last couple of years i think it's, it's how amazing it was and uh um so something that kind of uh, you, you kind of reiterated a few times is that folks with disabilities are often exempt from from participating in these things and uh you know on one hand you know that's great in the sense that it's you know the the you know you you use the term the sinless um you know these folks are still going to end up in in uh, you know in in, in you know in a in a positive place in the afterlife and and and, and so on and so forth they're not going to be sort of punished for not doing these things the the, the way you know it's expected of everyone else but at the same time, you know, we don't really work in the afterlife. Um, you know, we're working with folks that are around right now. And becoming exempt can also be another way of becoming excluded. Um, um, and, you know, it, it's hard to have inclusion in the context of something where it's not expected of you. Uh, so how how is that all kind of reconciled for for folks with disabilities? Because I mean, there there I mean, I, I get sort of this cognitive thing, but you know, I think something we've learned is that you know we really don't really know what cognitive abilities folks have or don't have. You know, all we know is they're unable to communicate um, and maybe unable to engage in certain life skills. And so when we make inferences on their sort of IQ or whatnot and decide that they're cognitively unable, but for all we know, there could be a, a mind sitting there going, you know, I want to participate in all five of these things. I want to go to Becca, you know, and, and the whole nine years, uh -huh. but we just may not be getting that message. So how how does that all kind of work in 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 from 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 your perspective? And that's a great and I touch on that on the paper because it's it becomes this 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 point where because it's not mandatory. People that, you know, have, have uh, physical impairments or people that are in a wheelchair end up being excluded because maybe mm -hmm. the mosque doesn't have a ramp, right? right? And because it's not mandatory, oh, you can pray at home, right? If you right. have a disability, you can pray at home. You don't have to come to mosque. But, and there's a few articles when I was writing this article, there's a, a couple of news articles from different people complaining about this saying, well, I want to be able to go to mosque with my family. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to go to celebration. Mm -hmm. So it, it is an issue. Um, I do know that there is now 
different organizations. There's one in Canada, in Toronto, called Smile Canada, mm. that um, focuses on um, uh, different groups, but mostly um, Muslim families and people with um, and people with disabilities that practice, you know, the, uh, the Islam, uh, Islam, um, mm-hmm. and they are working on educating. Um, people um, at mosques, at different um, organizations, you know, um, settings Mm -hmm. that might be more religious to teach them about, okay, inclusion, about making spaces accessible, Um, teaching things like um, for the prayers, right? They create visuals or visual schedules to uh, teach a child with autism or, you know, uh, some other disabilities, how to how to pray or how to wash mm. themselves before prayer. Mm. We now have people recording um, the whole Quran, which is the the, the religious book. The, sure. Um, for people with visual impairments, um, there's also people signing the whole Quran mm. um, and creating videos. Cool. I know there's now Qurans in Braille. Um, so that people with visual impairments can also um, read the Quran. So there's been, I think it's come, going back to what you mentioned before, like those religious models of disability, I think one thing that happens is that when you're religious, right? And when you, when, when it kind of, I don't want to say conflicts, but they kind of intertwine mm-hmm. the religious model and maybe the the social model, the medical model, whatever whatever country you're living in and what is mm-hmm. the, what's there. So you need to learn how to reconcile both. Um, totally. And I think because of how far we have gotten in terms of awareness and acceptance in general, in Western societies in the last 15, 20 years in the mm-hmm. United States, certainly since the passing of the Individuals with Disabilities um, Educational Act, we're seeing that also in um, religious settings. So it's, kind of spreading to to other areas so hopefully we'll keep you know we'll keep seeing organizations like like this one like um smile canada which is the only one i know of but there might be others that's the one that i am more familiar with probably because i live so close to toronto yeah yeah i think you make an important point about medical religious social being together i think we have a you know, I think we have a problem in general around sort of moving from one model, one framework to another to explain things um, and, you know, or or talking about sort of one, you know, form of oppression to sort of deal with issues. So ableism is a big one right now, um, but not mm-hmm. considering sort of some of the other you know intersections that are kind of kind of happening. I mean, I think I think there are, there is a place for religion. There is a place for medicine, um, um, and there is a place for you know that 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 social model as well, um, and to kind of work hand in hand. But we have a tendency to sort of like like right now. I mean, even my own bias is like is like saying, okay, well, religious model that's out the door because that's you know archaic and and cruel and wrong. Um, because I heard about this burying of some children in, in one rural town and somewhere in Africa. And I've now made the, the, the stretch in my mind that, you know, that's what religious models mean. Um, and uh, they're all bad and they're all wrong. 
Um, but there's all there's so much nuance in kind of all of this stuff. Yeah, I even when I I was in the in the classroom, I had a family when I was a teacher that was very religious, and they took their child um, mm. um, with with um, he had autism, you know, to church, and the mother she 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 said he's a blessing, and we're gonna take him with us everywhere, and people are gonna you know have to do with it right mm -hmm. um if they don't like it or if if we'll figure it out but he's mm -hmm. gonna come with us because he's a blessing from god and we do this as a family and she was very you know a very within the religious model she was very um forward um mm -hmm. she she was very inclusive of her child and that helped her um and that provided that child with a lot of opportunities for inclusion and for doing activities that his siblings were doing so i thought mm -hmm. that was neat yeah. um Similar to what you said, um, uh, have you heard of the book Demystifying Disability by Emily Ladau? I've heard of it, yeah. So she talks a lot about models of disability, and she's a she's a disability rights advocate. And even she talks about how sometimes she feels, you know, that it's society and it's a societal model that is making her life harder by not yep. being, you know, by not having ramps, by not making the subway more accessible. But sometimes it's a medical model in the and in the form that you know there's something in her body that day that she needs a medication for, or sure. I, I hope I'm interpreting what she said. Well, yeah. but I, for me, that was also related to what you said, right? Like it's not a one size fit all. There's, there's times where there's things that intertwine with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering about sort of, you know, some of the, again, kind of touched on some of the, controversial bits in 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 islam um and controversial from the perspective of that sort of you know western you know eurocentric kind of perspective you know um uh, yeah uh because what we do also know is certainly in behavior analysis anyway and i think in a lot of the psychology and helping fields in general you know, most of the practitioners are white, um, um, uh, and uh, and there and thus it goes to say that if they are religious, you know, and I'm not saying all folks that are white are are, are you know follow one religion, but a lot of them will will you know might will be you know Christian or or um, um, you know something like that. Um, that seems to be a, a pretty dominant religion in in kind of white. Euro cultures, you know, and uh, so they're gonna they're gonna have the whether they're whether they're religious or not, they're gonna have these perspectives again based on media, based on you know all this stuff, based on sort of you know some of the more kind of extremist cultures. You know, I mean, there's extremist folks in every background, every walk of life, every culture. It's not just extremist doesn't just mean you know um, you know. Uh, folks from one country or whatever um uh, we have extremist extremism all across the board and and you know problem number one is i think is 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 making extremism represent the whole group um, um yeah. so I, I guess what i'm wondering about is is as sort of a you know a you know a a, a a field where the practitioners are predominantly white and maybe come from those perspectives and they're coming in to sort of some of these you know um cultural norms that they that don't equate with their own values 
um, you know, how do folks kind of reconcile that? Like, how, how's that, how, how does that work? I mean, um, you know, I mean, I, for me, it's, it's like, well, too bad. I mean, that's, you know, that's their culture. That's, that's what they want. That's what they're asking for. But, you know, if we're seeing things like, you know, that, you know, maybe, you know, you know, maybe this individual should have the right to do A, B, and C, but the the religion or the cultural practices say no, they sh they shouldn't do those things. That's not for them, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and that I think that's a really hard question because yeah. it'll be there's so many components that play into that, right? Like yeah. the family believes the person that's providing the services. Um, families typically, you know, uh, usually immigrant families from latin america from arab countries from mm -hmm. the middle east tend to have a lot of respect for professionals too so mm -hmm. it may end up being it's hard to provide family-centered services because the family will just agree with what you want to mm -hmm. they say right. you're the professional yeah. you're yeah. the professional let's do what you say yeah but that's one of the reasons why i do the work i do too um, we talk a lot in the presentation that i did at Calaba. we talked about cultural humility we talked about cultural sensitivity yes being aware of that, being aware that there's not like what you learn is not necessarily what's what everybody learned and mm -hmm. what's best. Being open to learning from other families. And yeah. that's why I went through that framework. Um, because I said, okay, well, these are things that you may not consider because of your upbringing and because you might not just know that this might be different in other in other cultures. So, mm -hmm. like you said, it doesn't apply just to Muslim families or Latino families. A lot of these things can be used with any family you work with because yeah. we all have a degree we could all have a degree of diversity right like yep. maybe you grew up in a very rural area or in a very remote island that has their mm -hmm. own it has its own like culture yeah um or maybe you grew up uh, in a low socioeconomic background and because of that you didn't have a lot of exposure to xyz Mm -hmm. So I think it just becomes best practices because when you work so closely, and this is something that we do in our field, where we work so closely with families, particularly when we're talking about behavioral intervention, right? We're trying to modify someone's behavior, help them mm -hmm. with some skill. We want to make sure that that is as appropriate to their surroundings mm -hmm. as possible. And in doing that, we need to talk to the family we need to yeah. do a little bit of research about their background and you know maybe maybe become a little bit of a, a spy and in 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 detective not a spy a detective sorry mm -hmm. a detective and, and figure this out so that we can do things that align with the family's values and that are socially valid no matter who the family who who they are yeah yeah because then i also wonder there there are also things and i'm not saying uh, this applies specifically to to you know uh, Muslim Muslims, um, uh, but just sort of generally, you know, folks from different cultures um, um, may have. There's something. There's some things in North America that that you know uh, that are are you know are, are are pretty left leftist and 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 left thinking and and things that you know that we're allowed to do in North America. I mean, it's becoming less so in the states these days, but things we're allowed to do in North America that you're just you just you just wouldn't see in other countries. Um, um, mm -hmm. um, and it just wouldn't be accepted. Uh, sometimes that's because of you know, religion, but sometimes that's other reasons as well. Um, 
And, you know, I'd always kind of, you know, and this, this is a bit of a tangent, I know, but I do, I'm just, I, I, I was just sort of thinking about sort of, you know, how, how to work with sort of a family where you might have a, a an individual, like a, a, a kid that you're working with, um, who's got sort of, you know, maybe struggling with maybe gender identity or something like that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and that that already is, you know, uh, not not a, a simple area. And, you know, you need to get some training and supervision and, and learn more about sort of that piece before you kind of go there. But then you've got, you know, the family that maybe has a more religious background that's, you know, maybe not, you know, we're not going there, you know, we're not. Yeah. We're, he he doesn't get they pronouns in my house, you know, um, and uh, you know, first of all, like, is, is there anything kind of in 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 in? It doesn't seem to be from what you've read already around sort of inclusion and 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 the pillars and whatnot, and um, you know, uh, there's it seems to be a, a fairly sort of inclusive. Um, you know, Muhammad definitely had a, an inclusive vision in mind, I think, when 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 he kind of came up with this stuff. Um, but sometimes that doesn't always translate into the culture. Um, mm-hmm. um, I'm curious if 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 there's, you know, some ideas on on kind of responding to those kinds of inquiries where family and child are really, you know, maybe not on the same page because child might be more influenced mm-hmm. by, you know, those that, that piece. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you mean like what happens when what the what the participant, the individual, the child wants is at odds with what the family like. I guess that's really the question, and it could be anything, yeah. right? So, yeah, I I don't think there's anything specific to that. Yeah. Um, I think it's more of a respect your parents kind of culture, right? Um, as is is the case with many, you know, West not not Western, Occidental cultures, Latino cultures, yep. where you respect your parents, you do what they say, and you it's expected if you're gonna kind of like be along the same lines. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So there's not a lot there, and it it that's a really hard question. I feel yeah. like for any person in general sure. and especially if you're a practitioner working yeah, with yeah. a family that is um from a diverse background you have a a child that does uh say that i don't know what i would say in that case i think it, that would be yeah, something yeah. that you would need to collaborate a lot with yeah. other professionals to be yeah. able to really fit the needs of everybody involved because it is that will be one of the hardest I think um, I think you're right. I think I really um, I think my brain really wanted to make this about a certain culture, you know, and that's bias. <laughs> that's bias again talking. Uh, but you're right. This is this is just this this happens. No, but I think you mentioned you mentioned like even in the United States, sometimes that conversation yeah. is hard to have right now. For sure. Um in some in some in some in some in some, like you said, circles. Yeah. Um so it's not related to a culture, it's not related to one particular True. ethnicity or culture. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is a conversation that in general is becoming, I think, more in some circles more, you know, it's easier to have mm-hmm. if if you're what you know in the United States you call left leaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some circles it might be becoming a bit more difficult to talk about. Yeah. Um so it is it's becoming very political, it's becoming very charged. And yeah. I I I I feel for whoever needs to, you know, work with that with their with their clients because yeah. it is it is very difficult for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Hmm. Really cool. So what's, uh, so I, I love all this. So, so what's, uh, 
what's on the horizon for for you? What what are, what are you working on these days? What do, what do we have to look forward to? Uh, so next Monday. So today's Wednesday, and next, next Monday, Monday I'm going. Okay. To, <laughs> next Monday I'm going to Cancun. Oh wow! I am presenting some of the work that we talked about with um, Mexican families at the International Society for Augmentative and Alternative Communication oh, um, cool. biannual conference. So, like you mentioned, like I'm a BCBA that does a lot of BCBA and non mm-hmm. non behavior analytic work, but I think it all intersects, right? There mm-hmm. needs to be more people doing. AAC and 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 ABA work. Um, um, so I'm I'm doing that. <laughs> um, I'm going to that conference um, next next week. I'm very excited to mm. to be going there and talking about you know uh, some of my work. Awesome. Um, and then I have uh, I have two papers under review: the the Muslim paper that you mentioned, and yeah. another one where I um, analyze um, this uh, intervention that I developed for my for my dissertation. Mm. which is a naturalistic intervention that uses photographs uh, to help um, children on the autism spectrum and their parents talk about past events. Mm. Um, I already have the first paper of that published, and this is the second paper that I have under review, um, which I think is uh, really neat. And then I'm starting a new semester, my third year as a as an assistant professor at Niagara University in, yes. in August. Um, so lots of cool things, lots of projects, very, very exciting time to, to, to be in, I think in academia and doing this work because people are recognizing it and it's really, really neat. That's awesome. That's awesome. Really cool. Really cool to kind of hear all about the stuff you're doing and, uh, and, uh, looking forward to probably having you back several times as you jump into a lot of different a lot of different pools of 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 joy um yeah thanks a lot for coming on oh thank you for having me it was uh it was great to chat awesome